Hey, welcome. My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors. We're starting a new series today called Help Wanted. It's about God's grace. We're going to just explore God's grace together uh, during this whole month and different elements of that and how that plays out in our lives and our relationship with God, our relationship with other people, and all the rest. So I'm really excited about sharing this series with you guys uh, during, this good, during this month. And so let me, let me start by asking you a question. Did you get something awesome for Christmas that you just really are excited about? Um, if you didn't, I'm sorry. You know, I can't help that. But, um, or maybe, a, maybe some gift. Think about some gift that you've received recently that you just was, you're so stoked about, you know, and maybe it wasn't Christmas. Like, for example, uh, my wife gave me in advance, she gave me my birthday gift for 2020 because I've got kind of a milestone birthday coming up and it's a gift that takes a certain amount of savings and advanced preparation and stuff. She says, here's my gift. We're going to take a trip to England. So we get to go to England. And um, she said, here's the only thing. So you got to plan it. Okay, so, all right. So her gift is really her being there and being cooperative and being involved in that. And so I was really excited about that because I kind of, I really, I love the idea of, of that. And we get to do a, um, six days. We're going to do a, a bicycle tour through. So it's kind of like, like my hobby. And, and so I'm really excited about going. But the thing is, when Sally told me about this gift she's giving, she never said, okay, now you owe me. Or now, you know what, um, next year we're going to go where I want to go. You know, or um, nothing, like, nothing like any kind of payback or, or any indebtedness or anything like that. Because, no, it was a gift. It was a gift. And by definition, a gift is unconditional. A gift comes with no strings attached, or it's not really a gift, is it? You know that because you've been marketed to, right? And some retailer or marketer said they offered you a free gift, right? That, that if you took it, you ended up on a mailing list, or you ended up being upsold through some kind of bait and switch, and it wasn't really a gift at all because there were conditions applied to it. And so I think about, I was thinking about when I give my, give, my kids or my grandkids their gifts for Christmas or their birthday, I'm not thinking about what they have to do to pay me back for that. I never went to my son and said, look, Daniel, when you were nine years old, I gave you the best Legos ever, so you're going to take care of me for the rest of my life, you know? No, I, I gave him those gifts because I wanted to bless him, encourage him. I, I never, like, when it was time for my kids to start riding a bicycle, I never said, I'm going to pay for most of the bike, but I need you to save your money and scratch together all your coins and a couple bucks you can come up with because you need to contribute something to that bike. I said, no, no, it was a gift, and I, I wanted to give them a gift. I've never asked them to help pay for Christmas presents because I just want to bless them. I want to be generous to them. Those are gifts. And I'm bringing that up because I want you to know today what God is like. If you've ever received a gift unconditionally, freely, like hopefully you did 12 days ago, then you understand something about God and what he's like. Because God is a giving God. God is a, a generous God. He, he loves to help us. He loves to do for us what we can't do. And he does it freely and unconditionally. And at this point, let me bring in a Bible word here. The Bible word is grace. I mentioned that earlier. But when I speak of grace, I don't know what you think of first, I don't know if you think of that, that girl that you once knew who's named Grace, or I don't know if you think about um, that prayer you say before the meal, right? But I want you to understand how important this word is in the Bible, and 
as you grasp it and understand it, then how blessed you're really going to be. So, so we have a definition for it. Oops, forgot that one. A definition for it right here. This is my working definition for this series. Grace is the quality of God's character by which he helps us and blesses us with good gifts without requiring anything in return. Okay, that's what I want to share with you today. So grace is when you receive something good that you didn't earn and that you don't deserve. That's how God works toward us. That's how God saves us and blesses us and how God accepts us and helps us as his children. Even though we're not worthy of it, even though we don't do anything to deserve it, he lavishes his gifts on us for free because that's the kind of God that he is. And so in, in, this, in this series as we explore this, I want you to understand that grace is not just some kind of abstract theological concept, but it actually is going to change your life when you understand grace And I know a lot of people have a hard time with grace. I know a lot of people struggle with understanding this because our culture tells us that we need to earn what we receive. Some of you are confused about how God can help without you contributing anything to that, right? Because your mama taught you, right? God helps those who help themselves. And that's still kind of working in your heart and your soul. Some of you maybe don't see how God would give you anything without expecting anything from you in return. But in this series... We're going we're gonna to wrestle with those questions, and I, and I hope that you'll understand how, when, by the time we're done, how grace changes things, how grace changes how you relate to God, how grace changes how you relate to other people, and once you experience the grace of God, you'll never be the same. So we're going to look in our Bibles, we're going to look in our Bible apps, we'll have the verses on the screen today to explore at least the first segment of this whole larger concept of grace. Here's where we have to start to begin. To understand grace, we first have to understand that we are in desperate need of God's help. God graciously offers to help us, to give us the help that we need in life, but to receive that, we have to admit that we need it, right? Kind of like the husband who won't stop to ask for directions because he won't admit that he's lost, even though his wife and his kids and everybody else realizes that he's lost, he won't admit it. But here's the thing. We are lost ethically, morally, spiritually, Humanity's in trouble. Just look at the state of the world around us and look at all the violence and oppression and the deceit and the abuse of power and and the greed and all the conflict and everything. I could go on and on painting a picture and, and you can see how people treat each other. I mean, all the way from the office, all the way to the battlefield and everything in between. And it's not just criminals and dictators but it applies to each and every one of us in some measure. And so it's not hard to realize how accurate the Bible's picture is when it talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's the human condition. Here's the need that we have. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Now that paints a pretty graphic picture of the human condition, doesn't it? It says we've all disobeyed God. And it's kind of hard to argue with that when we look at our own lives, right? It says that if we're left to ourselves, we tend to follow the inclinations of what it calls our sinful nature, something deeply rooted within us that goes far beyond our actions, 
but it's actually um, something inherent within our very soul, it seems like, to the point that he can say in the very beginning verse, he says that we're, spiritually speaking, we're all dead, that we're dead toward God. And in the very last verse, he says we're all justly subject to God's righteous judgment against evil. That applies at, at some level to every single one of us. It's like each one of us is like the moon. We all have a dark side that nobody else can see. It's like each one of us is like a creaky old house. Maybe that's your house right now, right? So you know that you can paint it, you can do all the decorating you want to do, but it's still there's something at the heart, at the core that's, that's rotten, that's decaying, that a coat of paint won't fix. And so when it comes to God, we're all in trouble, and there's nothing we can do to escape our condition because dead things can't do anything to make themselves alive. We can never be worthy enough to measure up to God. And so it's like we're drowning in the ocean far from land, and we need someone who will come alongside and help us. We're too far from land to swim there ourselves. We need someone who can step in, who can rescue us, not someone who can jump in beside and show us how or can shout instructions from the boat. But we need someone to snatch us up out of the water and just haul us to safety to rescue us. We're, we're needy. None of us, I know, like to think of ourselves like that. But in those unguarded moments, you know, in some of those moments of life where we have some clarity about ourselves, and then we look at the broken world that we're in, and I hope that we at least be open to the idea that we all need God's help. Because here's the thing, is that when you embrace God's help, it changes your destiny. We saw just a moment ago that we all need to be forgiven of our sins, but the question is, how does that happen? How does that actually take place? How can we be freed from our broken condition? Well, we're incapable of earning God's forgiveness with our own piety, with our own religiousness, because we can never do enough to live up to this holy, perfect God. And how do we then remove the stain of past sins from our record? You know, some people say, well, just you can, you can pay with, for the past sins by doing good in the future. That'd be like going to the traffic judge and saying, I know I, I know I was speeding 10 miles over the limit, but your honor, ever since that time, I've been only driving 10 miles under the limit that whole time, so I know I don't have to pay the ticket, right? No, we have a responsibility. Justice demands that we pay for past sins. How do we remove that stain? Well, this is why God's story is such good news that there is a way to be right with God, and it's based on what God has done for us. It's a blessing that we don't deserve, but he gives it to us anyway. See, here's the central message of Christianity. Jesus died on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. That's the heart of Christianity. Well, in his death, he conquered sin. He paid the penalty for all of our wrong acts against God so that they can be forgiven. And then in his resurrection, when he conquered death, he made new life possible for us. And so here's the thing, that everything Jesus did on our behalf, everything that he did for us, he did it as a gift. And so grace is the means by which God forgives our sins and deals with those things. So look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It talks about this. <clears throat> So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. 
See, that shows how rich and generous and lavish God's grace toward us is. It's not dispensed with an eyedropper. It's poured out, poured out on us, more than we could even take in, it seems like. I thought about it like this. It's not like, okay, you go to Costco or Sam's Club on the weekend, you know, and, you, and they, they're giving samples out. Some people think that's like how God gives. You get a little taste, and you have to like walk around the whole store to feel like you got anything at all in your stomach, right? You give a little taste. But here's what it, God's grace is really like. What if you walked into Costco one day and they said, oh, man, we're so glad you came in today. We have laid out a complete banquet for you. Come and enjoy it, man. No more samples. We got all our best stuff for you. Come and enjoy it. No, it's even better than that. What if you walked into, into Sam's Club one day and they said, oh, man, we've been, so, we've been waiting for you to show up because here we are going to give you, we're going to feed you three meals a day for the rest of your life. That's how lavish and abundant God's grace is. That's how God forgives our sins. Now, when a gift is offered to you, what do you have to do to make it yours? You just take it. If it's truly a gift, you just receive it. You just pick it up under, from under the Christmas tree and unwrap it, and, and it's yours. That's exactly how we receive all the gifts of God's grace, by simply receiving them from him. Now, that's an act of faith to do that. If you think about it for a second, it's an act of faith because we have to trust that God will really do what he says he'll do, that God will keep his promise to us. We have to trust that Jesus lived a sinless life and that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And we have to trust that Jesus' work on the cross is going to be applied to your life individually and personally to your sins. And so there's an element of trust, I guess, in receiving any gift. And that, that's why we talk a lot about trusting Jesus and, and putting our faith in him. That's how a gift is received. And so we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. That word believed, that means you trusted and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. See, when you get a gift, you don't take credit for that. And so in the same way God receives you into his family, he wipes away your sins, God changes the trajectory of your life on this earth, he gives you a completely new destiny in eternity, it's all by grace, it's all a gift that God freely offers to us. So there's nothing you can do to take credit for any of that. In other words, it's not based on your performance. It's not based on your goodness. It's not about what you do or how much you do or how well you do it. But it's simply entirely based on God's goodwill and mercy toward you. That's grace. And why would a person not want to receive that gift? So that's the beauty of grace. It's, it's that simple. We have a need. God offers to meet our need. It changes our lives. But in fact, because it's so simple, the fact is that most people struggle to believe that God's help is enough. See, grace is a scandal. A lot of people can't swallow the scandal of grace. For example, if you think about it, grace, if this is really true, then it suggests that all of our moral and religious achievements don't really count. That God's not going to give us you know, a star for that. And it suggests even worse that the worst sinners are on an equal footing with good people before God. And for a lot of people, that's really hard to swallow because I've done my part. I've lived up to what I was supposed to do. You're saying that he or, or she gets in the same way I do? 
It's a scandal. But think about it like this. In reality, if you break it down, there's really only two approaches to God. And the first approach is what most people want to believe. It's the most common approach. The second approach is the one that's true. The first approach is based on what we do for God. And that's by far the majority of religions and philosophies around the world. It's all based on what we do for God. The second approach is based on what God does for us. And that's the teaching of historic Christianity. And you can see these two alternatives in the Bible. One place you can see that is in Titus chapter 3, in verses 5 through 7. See if you can see those two approaches played out here. It says, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. So, approach number one is in verse five, where it talks about the righteous things that we have done. Again, most people think of God like this. Every religion in the world has their own list. Now, the lists are different, of course, from from place to place. In Islam, a faithful believer is expected to pray five times a day. In Buddhism, at least the, the ones that, the part of Buddhism that I've encountered personally, a young man is expected to serve as a monk at least for some time in his, in his young adult years. But regardless of the details, all the world's religions have the same underlying principle at work that we must do something to prove our worthiness to God. As if our performance, our character, our activity, our effort has to carry some weight with God. But you know what? Our good works don't impress God one bit. The only thing that impresses God is the work that Jesus did when he went to the cross. And that's approach number two. You see it in verse five. It says, because of his mercy, he washed away our sins. And you see it in verse seven. It says, because of his grace, he made us right in his sight. In other words, it's about who God is and what he's done, what he's like, and what he's done for us. So there's only only those two ways. Now, because grace is such a scandal, a lot of people, a lot of groups, religious groups and leaders and so forth over the centuries have tried to mix the two approaches. Well, let's take a little bit of the of the approach number one, what we do for God, and let's put that together with a little bit of approach number two, what God does for us, and we get kind of a 1.5 or something like that. It's kind of like, well, God does the first part, and then I have to add my part. Or it's like, God will help me, but only after I've done everything that I can do. I've heard it framed as grace plus works. But by definition, grace plus works is absolutely impossible. Take a look at Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. I'll try to make this clear if I can. He says, A few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, His undeserved kindness in choosing them. Okay, so verse 5, that's a good definition of grace. It's God's undeserved kindness. And he says that there's, there's some people there that have received a certain blessing, and that blessing has come entirely by grace. Okay, and then the next verse he goes on to elaborate and says, and since it is through God's kindness, then it's not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace 
would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So, so follow the logic of this, this verse with me for a second. He says, if God's blessing is through his kindness, through his mercy, then it can't be by good works. Those two are, it presents those as being opposition to each other because he says if it was by good works in any measure, then it can't be by grace anymore. Here's, here's why, because then it would no longer be strictly free and undeserved, right? So as soon as you mix in any kind of merit or worthiness into the occasion, grace is completely nullified because a gift is, if a gift is not free and undeserved, then it's not a gift. That means it's not grace. So if God's blessing has to be earned by good works, even in the very smallest measure, it's no longer a gift, it's a reward. It's a payment, it's an obligation, but not a gift. It's like this. So this is an illustration that has helped me to understand this. It's because my daughter's a vegan. And what that means is she doesn't eat meat or any animal products. Right? She doesn't eat eggs and stuff like that. I asked her once about honey, and she couldn't answer me. Okay, She didn't know. <clears throat> but here's the thing. You can't say, I'm a vegan who just eats a little bit of meat. Does that make sense? Because say, I'm a vegan, but I only eat one strip of bacon a week. Right? Because by definition, as soon as you swallow one bite of bacon, you're not a vegan. You can't mix the two. They're opposite. They're contradictory. And I thought in the same way, if we just add one tiny requirement of good works, then salvation is not by grace anymore because that's the definition of grace. You can't be grace and works. Now think about this for a minute. Why do you think... It's so hard for people to stop trying to earn God's grace and just embrace this free, unconditional gift. Why is that so hard? Well, I think maybe it's the same reason it's hard for us to receive a gift from a friend without feeling like we have to give a gift back. Or for us to receive an invitation to come have dinner at somebody's house without us feeling like we're obligated to return the favor, right? You ever feel that way? I think it kind of comes down to pride in some form or another. Pride says, that, you know, I don't want to be seen as the weaker person or the needier person. Or I don't want anybody to think I'm not unable to reciprocate or that I'm just taking advantage. But when it comes to the forgiveness of our sins, pride says to us, hey, I don't really need God's help that much because I'm a pretty good person. Or pride tells us, hey, I've done my part. I've done what God wants, and so God owes me something. God has to give me some credit for my efforts. See, that's pride. But you know what happens when you try to mix your good works into the, into the mix with grace? What that does is it actually minimizes the gift of God. It actually disrespects the gift of God. And you're saying that, God, what you gave me or what you offer me just isn't good enough. i got to add something to it. So what if somebody made you a couple of jars of fresh salsa? I have a friend who makes this great salsa. Gave me, gave me some this year. What if he, your friend brings over some great salsa and it's homemade and it's homegrown tomatoes and peppers and, and, and it's a secret recipe, you know, and um, you know, no cans of, of Rotel or anything in there. It's just like fresh the whole way. And your friend brings it over and you open a jar and you taste it right there on the spot. What if you make a face and you start getting things out of the fridge, you know, to doctor it up, right? How would your friend feel about giving you that gift? 
Would that kind of be an offense to him? Or what if you discovered that you had inherited a valuable painting that was in your family for, for generations and 300 years ago it's been, and it's been taken care of in pristine condition. It was by some grandmaster in the past. And as soon as it was delivered to your home and you take off the packaging and you look at it, you run up to your office and get your crayons and your markers to improve it. See, when it comes to God, you see, there's nothing that we can do to make God's salvation gift any better. It's not lacking anything, so we can't add anything to it. And in fact, like that painting, anything that we try to add to it will only ruin it. It's offense against him and against his generosity. That's why I want to challenge your pride a little bit today. Can I do that? Why would we think that we can make a masterpiece better? Why would we assume that our salsa, so to speak, is better than God's? Why would we assume that? None of us can possibly add anything to what Jesus already did, and it's pure arrogance to think that we can. But at the same time, it's so hopeful to realize that we don't have to. Because when you face the truth that you don't measure up to God, it's then, only then, that you encounter the overflowing grace of God towards you, and it's only then that you can discover this mercy and this love and this kindness toward you, and then you can embrace the stunning reality that Jesus is enough. Now, I've told, I've, I want to tell you a story. I've told it before. I don't know if I've told it here or when I've told it. I've told a lot because it's such a striking illustration. So bear with me if you've heard it before. <clears throat> it just stuck with me. It's something that happened several years ago. We used to, be, uh, we used to have a booth down in, in Roy, we did down at the, uh, the West Haven campus in Roy, Utah, we used to have a booth in, in annual Roy days. I know every town has their days, right? Their whatever days, their tomato days or their pioneer days or whatever. We had a booth at the Roy days. And what we did as a church is that we just wanted to hand out ice cold water to people. It's a hot August day. We we're just giving away free water, free bottles of water. They're ice cold, really refreshing. Because what we wanted to do is we just wanted to bless the community. We wanted them to know about our church. And especially what we wanted to do is to give people a picture of what grace looks like, what God's grace looks like. Now, I vividly remember one guy, one day as I was offering him the water, he reached out in his, reached in his pocket and he took out a dollar bill. He's going to pay me, pay me for the water. And I said, no, no, the water's free. And he says, well, I always pay for what I take. And I said, the water's yours, but I can't let you pay for it. And he refused to take the gift. He walked away, thirsty, on a hot August day. He missed a blessing that somebody else had paid for because of his pride. Do you get my point? You see what I'm saying? When somebody offers you a gift, you have a choice. You can take it or you can reject it. And likewise, you can take God's gift of forgiveness and new life and you can make it your own by placing your trust in Jesus Christ, in Him alone. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. He rose again from the dead to give you new life. And it's yours for the asking. All you gotta do is recognize your need and, and take what He has done. But here's the thing. Because it's by grace alone, you don't have to get it all together first. 
You don't have to update your resume to come to God. His arms are open no matter how unworthy we are. And that's the whole thing about grace. That's the whole point. The grace is getting a gift when you don't deserve it. It's getting the help you need when you didn't earn it. And all you have to do is admit your need and admit you have nothing to offer to impress God. And by faith, you accept the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. That's our starting point today. And throughout this series, we're going to talk about more of the implications of grace. We're going to talk next week about how grace works in the Christian life. And the next week after that, how grace works in our relationships and how it affects, it changes everything about us once we grasp, once we've received and we understand the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your incredible mercy to us. You poured out your grace in such abundance. Father, that you didn't just give us a thimbleful. You didn't even just give us a gallon but you just poured it out and it's so much so that we can hardly even receive it, God. We know our needs are great, God. We need what you can do. We need what you can do to change our heart from the inside out, to forgive our past, to give us a fresh start, God. Only you can do that. And thank you so much that I don't have to check all the boxes on the list to be worthy of that. I just come with my need and come with my empty cup and hold it out to you and you pour it in. Thank you, God. Thank you so much, God, that this is your heart, that you're a generous, giving God. Thank you so much that this is what you long to do, what you desire. You love to help us. You love to do and be what we can't, what we need. And so I pray, Father, for each one of us that that you'd humble us today, that we'd be willing to look in the mirror and say, yeah, we've got a problem. Yeah, we're kind of messed up. And then admitting that we'd be willing to turn to you, to take that fresh drink of water from you, to not walk away from your offer to us today. So thank you, Lord. Speak to us. Do your amazing, transforming work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, for his honor and glory. Amen.